Open up with me to 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. We'll read through the end of verse 9. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you an understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offering, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. You may be seated. Join with me in prayer. Father, you are so good. You are so good to us. The spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places are eternal to those who believe. You have given us so much by your Spirit based upon what Christ has done for us. You've forgiven our sins. You've cleansed our our conscience. You've given us purpose and life and meaning and satisfaction and joy. You bless us with food, with modern medicine, with electricity, with heat, with a safe and secure country. Father, you bless us with income, with family, with parents and children. You bless us with a saving knowledge of you You bless us with scripture. You have not left us in the dark as to how we ought to behave, but you've told us in your word. You've blessed us with one another. You've blessed us with this church. Father, the blessings towards us are so rich and infinite. And Father, too often we're thankless. Too often we focus upon the things that we do not have. Too often we're discontent. And Father, in those times we... Do not remember to thank you. Rather, we self-pity and focus on ourselves. Father, we're prone towards complaining and bitterness and envy and discontentment. Father, we pray as a church, I confess the sins of this church to you. Father, forgive us for these sins. Forgive us for not thanking you and recognizing you as we ought Forgive us for focusing on that which we don't have rather than on the infinite blessings that we do. We ask for your forgiveness and your healing grace. Father, thank you for the atonement that you provided us in Christ and for the forgiveness that we have, the sure forgiveness, the eternal forgiveness that we have in him. And Father, we thank you for the ministry of the Spirit who convicts us and changes us by the power of the gospel. Father, I pray for the deacons. Thank you for the deacons. Thank you for 
their servanthood. Thank you for their leadership and love in this church. And Father, I pray more and more that you would abound their love more and more, that it would abound with knowledge and all discernment so that they might approve what is best for them and for this church. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit, that you'd fill them with both knowledge and love, with wisdom, that they'd be men of wisdom. Father, who love you and who serve this church. I ask for your blessing upon them and upon their families. I pray for both their physical and spiritual well-being. Father, I lift up these health concerns to you. We are a people with bodies that decay and die. And Father, so many suffer from physical ailments. Father, I pray for Kevin, John, Glenda, Gary, Phil, Nadine, Michael, Camilla, Lisa, Talon, Wally, Bob, and those others whose names are not mentioned. Father, I pray that you would use the pain of their bodies that they experience, the difficulty, the discouragement that that brings upon them to show them that this is not their home. I pray for their spiritual and physical renewal. I I pray that you would touch their bodies and heal them, that you would give them a hope in the future resurrection and a time where there will be no more pain and there will be no more tears. God, I pray for the area schools. Thank you that we live in a place where education is provided for us, Father. And I do pray for the public schools, Lord. I pray for the teachers who attend here and the students. I pray, Father, that they would be, have a gospel witness where they go, that they would consider their main calling the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for the students that they would evangelize their, their peers and share the gospel and be a light. And Lord, I do pray for the private schools, Lord, for his glory in particular. I pray, Lord, that you would bless that school, bless the private schools, Lord, and that you would use our church to be a blessing to the community, both in the physical, both through physical and spiritual needs, meeting those needs. Father, we praise you. We thank you for this time of coming together and worshiping you. We pray that your word would be precious to us and that you would use your spirit to convict us of sin and to lead us to Christ. Father, encourage the faint-hearted, chastise the complacent, and we ask in all things that Christ would be honored. Thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf, and we pray that by the power of the Spirit that this time, this worship, this, this worship service, this sermon would be beneficial to us and glorifying to your name. In all things we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning to you all. It's a joy to see you all this morning. I'm thankful to be here, and I'm thankful to be the pastor of this church. I oftentimes think, wow, I'm the pastor here. Pinch me. I'm, I'm very thankful for you, for all of you, and I'm very thankful to be the pastor here. This morning we're continuing in Philippians. We've concluded our series on prayer. And we're going to transition to an extended period of text, of verses, wherein Paul talks about his personal experiences. He talks about his imprisonment. He talks about his inner psychology, how he's feeling, how he's wrestling through being in prison, the sorrow that he experiences. We're going to cover all of that. But this morning, 
we're going to cover the notion of the power of the gospel. And to preface this, to continue this series where we talk about this, we've talked about it in prayer and we'll also talk about it this morning. And to preface it, I'd like to share a little story with you. This story comes from Catherine and I's first year of marriage. Our first year of marriage was a, a really a wonderful year. Looking back, we didn't have many responsibilities. I worked as a mailman. I loved being a mailman because the mail is routine and boring. And if there's one thing I love in life, it's routine. I'm a very boring person. Spontaneity, no thanks. I love routine. And the mail is exactly like that. You just do the same thing every day. Some days there might be a little bit more mail, other days a little bit less. But very routine, monotonous. And I loved it. I loved my job. And Catherine was finishing up her senior year of college. And she was involved in campus ministries. And we had a wonderful local church. And it was just a wonderful time. We didn't have children, so we didn't have those responsibilities. And we were just able to spend a lot of time together. A truly wonderful year. And in that year, we taught first and second grade boys Sunday school class. And in that Sunday school class, there was a number of decorations on the wall, like our Sunday school classes, Bible characters, Bible stories. And there's this one decoration that Catherine and I still talk about, and it was a stop sign. And in the middle of the stop sign, it said this. It said, can't stop the gospel. Can't stop the gospel. And it's hard to know why exactly you remember certain things and not others. I don't even remember the names of the boys. But I remember this sign. And I think it has to do with the childish yet true way it communicates an essential idea in Christianity. That nothing can stop the gospel. That God has this eternal plan. And the eternal plan is to fill this world with a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens in life, no matter death, no matter sickness, no matter for Paul imprisonment, that the gospel will go forth. And that is our hope as Christians, that though we die and we wither, that God's purposes transcend our lives, and the gospel will go forth. You can't stop the gospel. And so that's what I've titled this morning's sermon, Can't Stop the Gospel, Part part 1. I like these Part 1, Part 2s. Next week we'll cover Part 2. Go ahead and turn with me into Philippians, in Philipp, 2 Philippians 1.12. We'll cover 1.12 through 14. That's the passage that we'll be dealing with this morning. Philippians 1.12 through 14. I'll go ahead and read this passage. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So in verse 12, we hit a structural pivot. We just concluded at the end of verse 11, Paul's prayer. We spent a number of weeks on this, five weeks. And then we're transitioning to Paul talking about himself. Paul talks about his own circumstances in 1.12 through 26. And in 127, we'll hit another structural pivot. But that's where we're headed. I imagine this will take us through the end of the year, and we'll conclude it sometime in January. So this morning's sermon, I have three points for you. 
Each point is going to be a summary of the passage. Then I'm going to fit the meaning of that passage in an overall theological context of Scripture. And then I'm going to apply the meaning of that passage. So that's where we're headed. Each point will correspond to each verse here in 1, 12 through 14. So for the first point, the first verse is verse 12. And the point is this. The gospel advances. The gospel advances. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now this text that we're covering this morning, this verse specifically and the other two verses... This is an easy passage to understand. This really presents, this passage that we're covering, presents a very simple idea. Some passages take more time to unpack and explain, yet this passage is is easy. And the meaning of verse 12 is simple. Paul's imprisoned. Paul's in chains. And what he's saying is that his circumstances of being imprisoned has not prevented the gospel from advancing. On the contrary, his imprisonment has rather served to further advance the gospel. So the natural thinking of, well, Christianity is one of Christianity's foremost spokesmen in the first century is in prison. Therefore, Christianity is not going to be advancing at a rate that it was if Paul were not imprisoned. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. What is actually happening is the gospel is going forth in a greater way because Paul is imprisoned. That's what Paul is saying. Now, Paul does not tell us how this is occurring theologically. Look again in verse 12. Paul does not say, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel because God is in control. Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't tell us how theologically this is happening. But we need to understand how this is happening. What's going on? How is it, theologically, on the level of God's perspective, how is it that the gospel is advancing even though Paul is in prison? Well, this teaches, this touches upon the doctrine of divine providence. The doctrine of divine providence. That's the theological context I want you to read, verse 12, in light of. And we covered this doctrine in in Ruth. This was all what Ruth was about. That God is in control. That God is in control of human history. That God is in control of Ruth's life, of Paul's life, and of your life. That there is an invisible hand that is directing and guiding human history towards an end. An end that has been determined. And that's what's happening here. The reason why the gospel is advancing, even though Paul is in chains, is because God is in control. And God is making this happen. And this idea of God bringing about good, the advance of the gospel, through bad circumstances, Paul's imprisonment, is essentially what it is we believe in the gospel. That idea of God bringing about good out of bad is our central confession as Christians. Go to Acts 2 to further explore this idea. Acts 2. Verse 22. It's page 932. 
I'm sorry, did I say Acts 22? Acts 2, 22. I apologize. I even tricked myself out. Acts 2, 22. 9, 10. In your black chair Bible. This is one of the first sermons that the apostles give after the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And listen to what Peter says. Men of Israel, he's speaking to Jews. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now what I want you to see here is that God in the gospel, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God brought good out of bad, just as with Paul, his imprisonment. God brought good, the advance of the gospel, out of bad, Paul's imprisonment. Now, the, the bad here in Acts 2, this is the bad. The bad is that Jesus Christ, of whom did mighty works and wonders and signs, of whom was the most precious and, and infinitely righteous person who's ever lived, he was killed. There's been no greater evil in this world than the killing of God incarnate. And specifically, that killing was a crucifixion. And that was unspeakably bad, awful. There's no greater evil than that. But look what God does. God has, verse 23, God has this plan. He has a definite plan. Look in verse 23. That Jesus was delivered up according to this plan and God's foreknowledge. That Jesus' crucifixion and death did not take God by surprise. God the Father had this plan. And from all eternity, He was executing this plan in human history. And this plan reaches its climax in Christ. And even the crucifying and the killing is in accordance with this plan. So we have the bad. The bad is the death of Christ. Yet we have behind this bad a plan. And what is the good the Father brings out of it? Verse 24. God the Father raised him up. God the Father resurrected his son. And that good is an unspeakable good. There is no higher good in this world than God bringing redemption to it. But God brought redemption in an eternal good, a good that is far outweighs all other goods through the worst evil. But this is what God does. God brings about good through evil. And tracing it back to Paul. Paul is imprisoned. But Paul is saying to us that even though he is imprisoned, that God's plan is still being accomplished. God is still using evil to bring about good things. That's what our God does. 
And this is what it means for you personally. You will suffer in this life. That is a guarantee. There will be times of encouragement. There will be times of peace and health and prosperity. But there will also be times of suffering and difficulty. And God's purpose in that is the same purpose that he has for Ruth, that he had for Ruth, for Christ, and for Paul. That God's M.O. is to bring about good through bad. And what you have to do through difficulty, what you have to do through your times of trial, whether you're in prison for the gospel or whether you have cancer, you have to trust that God will be faithful to you. That God will be faithful to you just as he was faithful to Ruth, his son, and Paul. That God's MO is to bring good out of bad. And what you have to do is you have to trust him. You have to trust God. That God will be faithful to you even though you're going through difficulty and that God will use the difficulty for good. God is good. Second point. Let's go back to Philippians. This is the second point. The gospel advances among non-Christians. The gospel advances among non-Christians. Verse 13. Verse 13 and 14 provide the reasons, the evidence, for why Paul can say the gospel is advancing. So we might interpret verse 13. Paul, how do you know that the gospel is advancing? What's your evidence? Verse 13. The evidence is that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The guards here... These imperial guards, what it's referring to is Nero's employees. During this time, whenever Paul wrote the letter of the Philippians, Nero was in charge of Rome. He was the emperor. And so these guards are Nero's employees, specifically his soldiers. And all the rest is also referring to government employees. Paul's talking about Romans. His imprisonment for the gospel is known to these Romans. Once again, a basic idea. A very basic idea. But I'd like to, once again, put it in a theological context. Go to 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 Timothy 3.12. 9.96. This is a classic Awana verse. Indeed, this is Paul writing. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the context. If you live for the gospel, if you live a Christian life, you're going to be persecuted. Now, this can be on a very large scale. This can be on a small scale. Well, that's what Paul is teaching. There's this notion of persecution. For those who live godly lives and who preach the gospel, there will be opposition and persecution. 
And the reason why that is, is because the gospel is an offense. Our duty as Christians is to, in a very loving manner, give forth an offensive message. And that offensive message is this, that everything is not okay. That if you're in sin, your life is not right. And that the eternal God disapproves of you. That's not a fun message to give to people. The Bible says that the darkness hates the light. There's strong opposition in this world between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And this context is central for us that we have to uphold this offense. The power of the gospel is in the offense of the gospel. And if you get rid of the offense, you get rid of the gospel's power. Now, we're not offensive about the offense of the gospel. We communicate the gospel in a winsome and loving and gentle way, but nonetheless, there's still going to be an edge there that offends. And for those who live a godly life, there will be this reality. The gospel will offend. And the reason why Paul's in prison is because of this idea. The world hates the gospel, and Paul's duty is to uphold it. So that's the overall theological context. Now the application is this, for this point. Some time ago, Nike ran an ad. Nike ran this ad of a a former NFL quarterback, Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick is, is known for kneeling during the national anthem. He was, I think, the first guy who started this trend. I don't know how prevalent it is now, but one or two years ago, a lot of players were doing this. And his intent in doing this was to draw attention to the oppression of minorities in the states. I think specifically it was police oppression. And the the ad that Nike gave him, they rallied around him, and they gave him this ad. So there's this, if you, the ad is, it's a picture of his face, and in front of his face there's this message. And this is the message. Believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Now, this is a stupid ad. And this is why it's stupid. is because anybody can agree to this. Right? A Muslim terrorist can agree that, yes, this is true. Don't look to Nike for moral and theological advice, by the way. Nonetheless, it's easy to be a critic and not provide answers. Anytime I criticize, I always try to look for the truth of something. And in this ad, there is an essential truth. And that's, that essential truth is this, is that in life, in this life, there are some things worth sacrificing everything for. There are some things in this life that are worth sacrificing everything for. And preeminent in this life preeminent, the most important thing you can sacrifice your life for is the gospel. Paul sacrificed everything. Paul would agree to this ad, but he would include the gospel. He would say this, believe in the gospel even if it means sacrificing everything for. And the gospel, the the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
the saving message that Christ can forgive you of your sins is of such value and worth that it's worth losing everything for. So my question to you this morning, does your life reflect that? Do you live in a way that everything pales in comparison to Jesus Christ? Is the gospel worth of such value and worth to you that you would give up everything for if you had to? Third point. Go back to Philippians. The third point is this. The gospel advances in the church. Verse 13 gave the first line of evidence for how Paul knows the gospel is advancing. And then in verse 14, Paul gives a second reason, a second line of evidence. And that second line of evidence is that the gospel is advancing in the church. And most of the brothers, verse 14, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Simple idea here. Paul's example inspires these believers to be more faithful Christians. A simple idea. That just as they saw Paul boldly speak the gospel and be imprisoned for it, therefore they want to live a more faithful and godly life because of his example. His example inspires them. And so they therefore preach the gospel more boldly. Simple idea. Go to Hebrews 10. 24. Hebrews 10, 24. Placing this in a context, in a theological context. In the church, our respon- we have, a, we have a, both a responsibility and the privilege of seeking Christ in others. Our goal for other Christians should first and foremost be to see them grow in their walk with Christ. We want to see fruit in other people. Hebrews 10 24. This is what this passage says. It captures it well. Captures it well. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So we have this duty to one another. We have this privilege. We have the duty of stirring up in one another love and good works. Jesus says they will know you by your love for one another. We are to love one another. And the main way we express that love towards one another is seeking in them fruit for Christ. We want to see Christ take root in others and for Christ to change people. And that change is stirring up in one another love and good works. That's a commandment. We have that responsibility to one another. We have to pursue that in the lives of other Christians. But notice how it says, let us consider how to do it. Verse 24, right at the beginning. Whoever write, is writing Philipp, excuse me, Hebrews is telling us to consider how to do this. He's not telling us exactly how to do it. He's saying, think about it. And what this highlights is there are, there are a myriad of ways to stir up in one another love and good works. A myriad. You can provide a meal for someone. You can do a favor for someone. You can pray for somebody. A myriad of ways. But the way I want to connect this to Philippians, the way I want to connect it to Paul, is this notion of example. This notion of inspiration. I love reading Christian biographies. 
And one reason why I love reading Christian biographies is that they inspire me. I read the, 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 these people's lives and I see the difficulty through which they obeyed Christ and it inspires me. I want to live for Christ more. And the hope is, is that you can see that in my life, that you would be inspired in my life. You would see love and good works in my life and that would inspire you to love and good works and vice versa, that I would see it in your life and it, that would inspire me. So we need to consider how to do this in one another. One way is through this notion of an example. People are watching your life. People here, in this context, and outside this context. We all kind of know one another. We're connected by relationships, and we look at one another's lives. And what we are called to do is to be faithful. And when I see your faithfulness, that will lead and produce in me faithfulness. We have that obligation. Our lives ought to inspire one another towards love and good works. That's the idea. You need to live in a way that your life inspires other Christians to live faithfully. That's our obligation and our privilege. That your life, you can make a difference in this world. And that difference is through others. To conclude this morning, I want to leave you with a story of inspiration. A godly example. And the purpose in sharing this story is that you would live in a way that God's love would abound in your life and that you would be stirred up towards faith, excuse me, towards love and good works. And this story is particularly touching to me. I, I heard about it in, in seminary. And it's not a very wide-known story. One of my professors shared, with, shared it with me. And the story is about an Anabaptist during the 16th century. Anabaptists was one of the groups of reformers. There was Lutherans, Reformed and Anabaptists, Roman Catholics. And the Anabaptists got picked on the most because they tended to be pacifists. They tended to not fight in wars. And many Christians, many other Christians, killed Christians during this time. Now in this situation, this Anabaptist wanted to be rebaptized. What gave them their characteristic is they didn't believe in infant baptism, so they were rebaptized as adults. And Roman Catholics didn't like this. And so what they would do is they'd kill them. Listen to the story. No story of an Anabaptist martyr has captured the imagination more than the tale of Dirk Williams. Dirk was caught, tried, and convicted as an Anabaptist in the later years of the harsh Spanish rule under the Duke of Alva in the Netherlands. One winter, Dirk escaped from his prison by letting himself out of a window with a rope made of knotted rags, dropping onto the ice that covered the castle moat. A moat is a body of water that surrounds a castle so that no one can get in and out without the drawbridge. So this moat froze. It's the winter. Seeing, him, seeing Dirk escape, a palace guard pursued Dirk as he fled. Dirk crossed the thin ice of the frozen castle moat safely. His own weight had been reduced by short prison rations. But the palace guard who pursued him 
broke through the ice. Hearing the guards' cries for help, Dirk turned back and rescued him. The less than grateful guard then seized Dirk and led him back to captivity. This time, the authorities threw Dirk into a more secure prison, a small, heavily barred room at the top of a very tall church tower, above the bell, high up where he would never be able to escape again. Soon he was let out of his cell and burned to death. The gospel is worth sacrificing everything for. And what Dirk's example teaches us and what Paul's example teaches us is that it's worth it. It's worth it to love your enemies to the point of death. And the reason why it's worth it is because Jesus Christ is worth it. In the gospel, we have so much. We have everything that we need. And my hope and prayer is that that gospel would take root in your life in a way that your life inspires others. That just like Ruth, just like Jesus, just like Paul, just like Dirk, that your life would lead others to love and good works. And that, that you would inspire other people through your obedience. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you that you can't stop the gospel. That it's going to go on. That, Father, you have this plan. And the plan is that nothing will stop the gospel. Not our un unbelief, not others' unbelief, not prison, not death, nothing. And, Father, we pray that we would hope in that gospel. That our lives would be built on that gospel, and that the gospel would take such root in our lives that we inspire others towards love and good works. Father, we thank you for Dirk Williams. We thank you for Paul. We pray that their example would lead us to live a life that inspires other people. We pray for your power and your impact in our lives, and we give you infinite praise. that you would be with us in the person of the Spirit and that you would save us from our sins. Thank you, Father, for the salvation that you give us in Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.